Um, but more than just being able to do that, it's just it's it's a big show of force. It's like all of, all of everybody you're struggling. You guys are struggling. Guess what we're doing? We're we're not just not struggling. We're thriving so much that we're going to increase FDI insurance by eightfold. While everybody else is kind of you know you don't question marks about your money. Where is it? And so I think this is definitely a huge show of strength for SoFi. The insiders have been buying, um, and deposits are are growing, and they're increasing the the uh, feature set of the platform. And so I think that yeah, this is an Amazon moment for them. This is a dot com crash Amazon moment for them. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hyper Growth Investing. And I'm here in studio with investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing today? Uh, good, good, good. Got one of those flights that got delayed four or five hours, and so pulled in at 2 a.m. operating on four hours of sleep. But when you got two kids, that's that's the norm. So all right, I'm all right. Okay, good to hear. Uh, well, I know you have a full plate today, mm -hmm. and I want to get started with all our topics in just a moment. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at trending investment innovations, EVs, alternative energy, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. We go up every Wednesday on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to click like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, Luke, let's start this week off with one of your favorites, SoFi. Uh, because there's been a lot of talk about how SoFi is actually emerging as a winner in the current banking crisis. Mm -hmm. Last week, for example, the bank increased FDIC insurance up from $250,000 per account to $2 million per account. The stock has been responding favorably too. Um, is it true that the banking crisis is actually really positive for SoFi stock? Yeah, so we've always called SoFi the Amazon of finance because of its all-in-one super app, right? The super finance app, we can do everything in one place. And I think the parallels get stronger with this banking crisis. Because when you think about Amazon, Amazon really didn't start to take over the e-commerce industry until the e-commerce industry itself had a crisis in the wake of the dot-com crash. Right before 2000, in 1999, 1998, you had Pets.com and Boo.com and Webvan. I mean, you had an online website for everything. And Amazon.com was an online bookstore. It was one of many, one of many e-commerce sites. But when, you know, SHIT hits the fan, then you start to see, and the tide goes out, you see you swimming naked. And when the tide went out in the dot-com bubble, you got to see that all these, you know, dot-com sites were swimming naked. They were only growing because they were spending like drunken sailors. And so all of those sites went under. Pets.com went under. Webvan went under. Um, all those sites, just Boo.com, they went under. But Amazon.com didn't go under because it was growing responsibly and it was growing the right way, growing appropriately. But everybody still liked to shop online. So all those people that were shopping on Boo.com, that were shopping on Pets.com, that were shopping on Webvan, left those sites because they were no longer operating, and they went to the one site that was still operating, Amazon.com. So Amazon.com had this kind of land grab market share gain during the dot-com crash because all of its competitors went under or were struggling, and we're not marketing, we're not advertising, we're not growing. Amazon kept growing. That's kind of what we're seeing with SoFi right now, is that... There is a regional banking crisis, absolutely. Silicon Valley Bank went under, Signature Bank went under. 
Credit Suisse kind of went under and then got saved. First Republic kind of went under and then got saved. And then there's a bunch of reports about just huge out deposit outflows from a lot of the other regional banks. You look at the regional banking stocks, those, those reflect those, uh, those stock prices reflect those outflows. Those stocks are crashing. But SoFi has seen no deposit outflows. Uh, the CEO, Anthony Noto, came uh, on and said that, you know, we expect deposit growth this quarter to be as good as, if not better than last quarter. So not only are the deposits not going down, but they're growing as quickly as ever. And they just, as you, to your point, increased FDIC insurance from 250000 to $2 million, which is the, no other bank's done that. That's the first in this industry. They, how they did it is through a proprietary insurance network they have with other banks. Again, it's a technology thing that allows them to do this. Um, but more than just being able to do that, it's, just, it's, it's a big show of force. It's like all of, all of the, everybody, they're struggling. You guys are struggling. Guess what we're doing? We're, we're not just not struggling. We're thriving so much that we're going to increase FDI insurance by eightfold while everybody else is kind of, you know, you don't question marks about your money. Where is it? And so I think this is definitely a huge show of strength for SoFi. The insiders have been buying. Um, and deposits are, are growing. And they're increasing the, the uh, feature set of the platform. And so I think that, yeah, this is an Amazon moment for them. This is a dot-com crash Amazon moment for them. A lot of their peers are, may not go under, but will definitely struggle for the foreseeable future. They're going to have a land grab market share moment. I think their growth gets accelerated because of the banking crisis. Now, again, Amazon wasn't the only winner. Amazon's just the biggest winner. Right. You know, and we talked a little bit, little bit about this last week, but are there other opportunities in with this regional banking crisis? Yeah, yeah, no, of course. There are a lot. So the, our thesis is that there are some really compelling investment opportunities being uh, created because of the banking crisis because all regional banking stocks are trading like they're going to go under. But there's been so much support from the government and from bigger banks that it looks very unlikely that many will go under. That maybe if you give me 10 regional banks, maybe two or three go under, seven or eight won't all 10 of those stocks are trading like they're gonna go under. So I think if you honestly just put a blindfold on and pick a region, just pick the regional banking stock, you're probably, gonna make, you're probably gonna make money on it. Mm -hmm. But what I wanna, I wanna look for the high, the really high quality ones to reduce my risk. I'm looking for ones that, where deposit growth is actually still positive or it's you know barely down. So deposits are up five, 6% quarter over quarter or down two, 3%. Silicon Valley Bank was down about 15% from its peak. So anything that's got double digit declines in deposits, get out of there, not worth it. But if you see positive deposit growth, that's a good place to start. If you're seeing insiders buying, that's a good place to start. If you're seeing a very well-capitalized balance sheet, that's a good place to start. If you're seeing that their clientele base is you know, expansive beyond just the tech niche, that's a good place to start. And so I think, yeah, I think, again, 10 regional banking stocks, I think two or three go to zero, but seven or eight will not. All of them are acting like they're going to go to zero. And so that is a, I think there's a huge opportunity to buy a lot of those, those regional banking stocks. And... Um, and I can't really throw out names because these are these are really small mm -hmm. small companies, and I, I'm giving some of the names to my my elite subscriber list. But if you just kind of look up, you know, bank ETFs, and then go through those and find the ones that are smaller that have been really beaten down, you'll find some. I think you'll find some gems in there. I think it's definitely a contrarian buying opportunity because again, like I said, there is an immense amount of support coming through the pipeline for these firms right now. And just to kind of go back to SoFi real quick, how does what is SoFi doing that these other banks may or may not be doing mm -hmm. that makes SoFi that clear Amazon level winner right. and these other smaller regional right. banks 
possibly successful in the future, but mm-hmm. again, not getting the name recognition that SoFi is getting right now. Right, yeah, so I think there's there's a few things there, but I think the first approach, or the first reason is is just the approach to the business. And this is why we've liked SoFi forever, is it's a, a digital first tech native um, banking platform. So they get rid of a lot of the costs that are stuck in legacy banking, right? I mean, legacy banks think like Wells Fargo. I mean, Wells Fargo's not struggling right now, but that's how they operate is the business model for banks. They have branch locations. They have, you know, you know, at those locations, they got to pay for real estate. They got to pay for people to work there. They got to pay for security. They got to pay for, uh, you know, the money to get transferred there and transferred away from there. So there are a lot of costs with operating a branch location. And Wells Fargo has thousands of them. Regional banks have dozens of them, right? So there's a huge operating cost with those physical places. SoFi doesn't have physical places. So they were move a ton of operating expenses and capital expenditures from the business. So they're a very CapEx light, OpEx light business, which means they can be slim, which means they can have a lot of uh, room for costs to go up if costs needed to go up in such a situation like this, right? So I think SoFi's just operating structure allows it cost advantages over other competitors. It's much like Amazon back in, in the early 2000s, right? They developed a logistics network that other e-commerce sites did not. So other e-commerce sites are really reliant on third-party delivery, UPS, USPS, FedEx, all that stuff. But Amazon was quietly building out its fulfillment network. And so it was having this in, in-house cost structure that was operationally superior to what other com- or other competitors are building. And so I think SoFi is in a very similar boat. And that's why I've always liked SoFi because they remove a lot of those costs and pass the cost savings onto you. That's how they're getting this $2 million insurance. They have 4% APY, 2% cash back on the credit card, 3% for some, you know, if you're an exclusive kind of member there. And so these are numbers that are best in class across the board. And it's because of the operating structure. Tech native, remove a lot of the physical operating costs, pass those on to consumers and allow them to have basically the best in uh, best in class um, uh, savings, yields, cashbacks, everything that you want out of a bank. So that's, that's how I view SoFi. That's what I think is making them superior in the situation right now. And last question with regards to SoFi, uh, what would you say to somebody who has fears of going into a company like SoFi as a as a consumer um, with the current regional banking crisis? What would you say to them? If you're a consumer, if you're a consu- if you're a consumer, you're you're looking at you're looking at SoFi. You're hearing Luke Lango talk about it. Right, it's right. a gr- it's a great thing. It sounds great on paper, but I still have these fears about right. all these things that are going on in the banking situation right mm-hmm. now. What would you say to those uh, people? Well, again, um, you can't paint a picture with such broad strokes. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is there is issues with banks, but have you heard of any issues with SoFi? Mm-hmm. There are no issues with SoFi. Everybody has their money. Everyone's able to withdraw. There's no questions about it. The CEO has been saying, you know, deposit growth is very strong and very positive. Um, you just again, there there are companies that emerge in crises as superior, and SoFi is is doing that and. If you haven't moved to SoFi already, I would highly suggest that you do. Again, I I, I like to invest in companies for the long term. Mm-hmm. And in order to invest in a company for the long term, have confidence in it for the long term, you have to be an adamant fan of the business. Mm-hmm. Like there's a reason that I like SoFi stock. It's not just because <laughs> I like this, you know, six dollar banking mm-hmm. stock I think and go up. No, it's yeah. because I use the SoFi platform. I fell in love with it. I got other people to use it. They fell in love with it and I saw with my own eyes, how powerful this network can become. Mm-hmm. If that continues, and this is going to be a massive company one day, a massive fintech giant one day, and I think that the banking crisis will accelerate um, 
SoFi from its beginning point to its end point, which again, I think is a regional bank uh, size bank. So that's 20 million, 30 million, 40 million users. They're at, you know, five, six million today. So there's a lot of growth potential here. And that's where I think that SoFi stock at five, six bucks is completely undervalued and has potential to go to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. That's where I see it over the next three or four years. All right. Uh, switching gears a little bit. Uh, Want to talk about the Fed. Uh, yes. How did you think uh, their meeting last week and the market's response? How did that all go down? Yeah, so the Fed had a very interesting meeting. Um, and a lot of people got kind of confused because stocks obviously crashed on the day of the Fed, but it wasn't because of the Fed. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of look at a tick-by-tick -tick view of, of the S&P 500, NASDAQ, Dow on that day, stocks rallied after the rate hike announcement. And they rallied after the rate hike announcement because the dot plot didn't shift. And a lot of people thought that the Fed came out with a terminal rate in December 2020. So the Fed has their meetings once every two to three, once every two months, basically, or once a month. And every three meetings, they have a new summary of economic projections, which is when the Fed comes together and they kind of pencil in where they think rate hikes are going to go, or rates are going to go, where they think GDP is going to go, where they think inflation is going to go. That only happens once every three meetings. So the last time we got one of those was December. In December, the Fed was saying in that dot plot, is what they call it, because they fill in their dots. In that dot plot, the terminal rate was going to be 5.1% in 2023. That's where interest rates were going to go. Since then, there's been a lot of talk from the Fed in January and February about how interest rates probably need to go higher than what they said in December. So as of February, it looked like a lock that the dot plot was going to shift up. We're going to go from 5.1 to probably 5.5. That was the talk on the street. Then the banking crisis happened. And then everyone was like, okay, is the Fed going to actually shift that dot plot to 5.5 or keep it at 5.1? They kept it at 5.1, mm -hmm. which is dubbish. Okay, mm -hmm. That means that they don't see more rate hikes than what they saw in December, and in fact, mm -hmm. may see less. So we rallied after the rate hike announcement because the dot plot didn't shift. It stayed at 5.1. And because if you look at the language in the press release, in every Fed rate hike announcement since they started hiking rates back in March 2022, so mm -hmm. a year ago, they said that, quote, ongoing rate hikes are necessary. Mm -hmm. To, to, stifle, or to stifle inflation, basically. They dropped that language for the first time ever in this uh, March 2023 press release mm -hmm. and said, they said, ongoing firming, or, or more firming may be necessary. Mm -hmm. So a change from ongoing rate hikes necessary to potential firming, may, more firming may be necessary. So a lot changed in a dovish tilt after the announcement. So we rallied big after the announcement. Then we pulled back because nobody wanted to front run Powell's press conference, right? Because that's when the fireworks happened. So we rallied after the rate hike announcement because dot plot didn't shift and we got dovish speak in the press release. Then we came back down, no one wanted to front run Powell. Then we rallied big when Powell started speaking because Powell himself did sound pretty dovish. Talked about the banking crisis, but he said the banking crisis is going to act like a rate hike in effect, which is what a lot of us wanted. A lot of bulls wanted them to perceive the banking crisis as a rate hike so they wouldn't have to do a rate hike, mm -hmm. right? So bulls heard what they wanted to hear, and we rallied big off that, and we were up 1% across all three major indices, and then we tanked. And everyone thought we tanked because Powell said we don't have any rate cuts planned for 2023. Mm -hmm. That's not why we tanked. If you look at the tick by tick, we topped right when Janet Yellen, in a separate testimony <laughs> that nobody was paying attention to, mm -hmm. said that the U.S. government was not thinking about insuring all deposits at regional banks, mm -hmm. which is something she said on last Friday, the Friday before that, she said they were going to do that. Mm -hmm. So then she reversed course, and then that's when we, we tanked. So we didn't tank because the Fed, we tanked because of Janet, not mm -hmm. Jay, we tanked because of Janet. <laughs> um, it's funny how that, you know, you got, we got Joe Biden, Janet Yellen, and Jay Powell, Joe, Jay, Janet, Jay's, Jay's across mm -hmm. the board. But yeah. anyways... Um, <laughs> 
So the Fed reaction was actually really positive. Mm -hmm. The Fed, it was a dovish hike. They're talking about stopping rate increases. And we would have rallied like crazy in the stock market if it weren't for Janet Yellen in a meeting that nobody's paying attention to except for the algorithms. Mm -hmm saying that they weren't going to back all the deposits. Now, since then, she said they probably are going to back all the deposits. She's just kind of playing reverse-reverse right. with the market. So I'm not paying too much attention to her comments. Mm -hmm. I'm paying attention to what, how the market reacted to the Fed initially, which was very positive. And I think that it's, it all comes down to, to inflation, that the Fed is basically saying, okay, um, we're here. We are slowing our rate hikes because we see inflation coming down. Um, and we have this banking crisis. We don't know how it's going to play out. We're going to wait to see how it plays out, see how it impacts inflation, and then we're going to make a decision on rate hikes. Mm -hmm. So when I hear all that, all I think is, okay, the Fed is an output. They're looking at the real input is inflation. So we have to pay attention to inflation over the next month. That's what I think is going to really determine the course of the Fed over the next six months. Okay, so if this is all about inflation still, right. what is the data showing you right now? Yeah, so the data is showing me that inflation is about to roll over really, 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 like faster than ever in mm -hmm. March. Um, whether you look at, so a few things we look at, uh, three big things. One is the Trueflation data, trueflation.com. That's uh, real-time inflation data built on the blockchain. That I think is really, it's a really interesting way to benchmark inflation to gauge CPI. And that has collapsed below 4% in March. And it's a bigger drop than we've seen in any month uh, in this tracking. Mm -hmm. So. Trueflation data is collapsing uh, for, the, for the month of March. Um, you can look at the Cleveland Fed uh, now casting. So the Cleveland Fed has an inflation forecasting tool. They forecast CPI on a monthly basis. So they forecast January, February, March, whenever it comes up. So now they're on the CPI March forecast. Mm -hmm. They're calling for inflation to drop to 5.2%. It was at 6% in February. So that would be an 80 basis point drop. That would be the biggest drop in this cycle. The biggest drop we've had in the cycle so far is 60 basis points. We've mm -hmm. done it twice. If we drop 80 in March, <clears throat> excuse me, that would be the biggest CPI drop in the cycle. Hugely disinflationary. So those are two readings that show disinflation is, is really picking up steam in, in March. The third one is what we pay attention to is all of the district Fed surveys. So New York Fed, Dallas Fed, Philly Fed, they go out and they all conduct two surveys every month with their services businesses and their manufacturing businesses. And they ask the services business, how are things going? They ask the manufacturing business, how are things going? They got a set of questions. And two of those questions are, how are the prices you pay for goods trending? And how are the prices you're receiving for goods trending, goods and services? And across all of those surveys, across services and manufacturing in all districts, the prices received and the prices paid indices crashed in March. So the composite of all those, we, we track the composite, has logged its biggest decline in this cycle in March. So you got all that survey data, price survey data crashing. You got the Trueflation data crashing. You got the Cleveland Fed now, or now cast uh, uh, forecast uh, crashing. You put all that together and it tells me inflation is crashing in March. So we're going to get those March readings in April. I think those are going to be really, 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 really soft reading, soft CPI, soft PPI, soft PCE. And that's going to be an alley-oop for the Fed to pause in May. And then I think they're going to stay on pause because what you understand is this March crash in inflation mm -hmm. doesn't even reflect tighter bank lending conditions. That when you look across bank lending volume, it just started to decline significantly in the second half of March. Mm -hmm. So I expect that to, to continue into April. That I think as a result of this whole banking crisis, the real effect is that 
banks are going to significantly tighten their lending standards. Yes, a lot of them got away got away with this because they're getting bailed out, but mm-hmm. they're not getting bailed out. Mm-hmm. The depositors are getting bailed out. Mm-hmm. The people making the decisions, the execs at Silicon Valley Bank, mm-hmm. the execs at Signature Bank, they aren't getting bailed out. So if I'm an executive at one of the other regional banks, and that's the person making the decisions, the risk-taking decisions, I saw the peers that, my peers that screwed up, they didn't get bailed out. If I screw up, I'm not going to get bailed out. My depositors are, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. So I'm the one making the decisions. I'm going to set my own ASS, and I'm going to make right decisions. I'm going to reduce my risk-taking appetite. So I think all these regional banks, all these small banks, are going to significantly reduce regional or Mm risk-taking in April, May, and June. That's really important because small banks are high-velocity. Larger banks are not high velocity. High velocity meaning that they turn money over quickly. Mm-hmm. Small banks are high velocity. If the high velocity part of the banking system starts to significantly tighten their lending conditions and starts to their loan volume starts to decline, then that's going to significantly hurt inflation. Significantly. So I think inflation is crashing in March, and I think it's going to crash even more mm-hmm. in April and May. And that's why I think the next three to four CPI readings are going to show 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 basis points each. Mm-hmm. That gets us to 3% CPI by the summer. If the Fed sees that as well, which I think they do, they pause in May and they stay paused and we rally big in stocks. So that's how I'm seeing the, the inflation Fed picture right now. So with regards to the banks and inflation, is what's happening right mm-hmm. now with the banks a catalyst, an effect, or something that's on the periphery that just kind of is affecting inflation uh, the, the the Fed is, what's happening in the banking system is a result of what the Fed has done. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, but now it's causing the Fed to second guess going farther. Okay. Like, there are even people out there that were very adamant the Fed needs to hike more, hike more, hike more, hike more, and now they're saying pause. Mm-hmm. Because people realize, okay, once the banking system starts to crack, it, it's like... Uh, I don't know, like, like, like a teapot or like, like, mm-hmm. like a nice piece of china, okay. right? If there's a little crack in it, you got to be really careful with the cup mm-hmm. because if you start, then the whole thing's going to break. That's the banking system. Mm-hmm. We have cracks in our China and our nice teacup. Mm-hmm. We have to be really careful with it now because if we just say like, oh, it's just this tiny crack. We can keep using it like normal like we were. Then it, the whole cup's going to break. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's going on with the banking system. We have a little crack. If we keep going at the pace we have been going, the whole thing's going to collapse. Mm-hmm. We're getting pretty lucky with this crisis that it is being well contained. But if we continue, then it will not be well contained and you got a repeat of 08. And I think everybody sees that writing on the wall. And so now it's just a matter of, okay, how soon will the Fed pause? Mm-hmm. And will they cut rates in the second half of 2023? And I think that all depends on the inflation. That's why, again, I'm coming back to, I'm hyper-focused on inflation right now. Mm-hmm. I think inflation is driving everything because the Fed is the master, they're the master of the financial universe. Mm-hmm. They control everything. And they're telling us, we are responding to inflation. Mm-hmm. So the people that control everything in financial markets are telling me they're responding to inflation. I'm hyper-focused on inflation. Mm-hmm. And right now what I'm seeing in the inflation side of things is very, very, very bullish. Prices are, price pressures are coming down significantly. Mm-hmm. And again, we've talked about this before, but like that's what people have to really understand about inflation is the death of inflation does not mean prices go back down. Mm-hmm. The death of inflation just means prices stop increasing so much. And they go back to growing by 2% a year, 3% a year. That's the death of inflation. Mm-hmm. We are nearing that point. I think the Fed killed inflation. They got inflation under control back in December. Disinflation is really strong right now. And again, because this bank lending stuff, it's going to get even stronger. And so I think if the Fed recognizes that, we're going to be able to pause and we're going to be able to rally in the second half of the year. 
as far as rate cuts are concerned, I don't think we cut rates. Mm-hmm. The market's pricing in a lot of rate cuts. I don't think that happens. That may be a downside shock to equity markets in the short term, but uh, we don't want rate cuts. Mm-hmm. When the Fed starts cutting rates, that's historically bad for markets because the Fed cuts rates in response to weakening economic behavior. Mm-hmm. They pause rates in response to winning the fight against inflation. So if they pause without cutting, that means they won the fight against inflation without killing the economy. If they pause and cut, that means they won the fight against inflation and the economy suffering. So I don't want to pause and cut. I want to mm-hmm. pause and hold. Got it. And I think that's a basis under which stocks can and will rally. Okay, so you know we've been talking about this 2023 rally for a while now. Yes. Uh, you've been talking about this big shift happening in the economy and financial markets mm-hmm. for 2023. Um, dive a little bit into this shift in back half of 2023. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a really interesting thing, and it's something that one of our theses coming into 2023 was that everything was going to shift 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. That the inputs to the macroeconomic model were going to shift 180 degrees, and as a result, the outputs in the financial markets were going to shift 180 degrees too. So on the input side of things, um, inflation rose throughout 2022. Inflation has been declining in 2023 steadily. So that's a big input shift. The Fed was becoming increasingly hawkish throughout 2022. Right At the beginning of the year, they were not hiking rates. Then they went 25, then they went 50, then they went 75 all the way into the year, right? So that was an increasingly hawkish evolution of the Fed. Here in 2023, they've gone from 75 to 50 to 25 to maybe a pause and maybe even cuts, right? So now we're getting increasingly dovish Fed. So that's a 180 degree shift. Mm-hmm. The economy came into 2022 with a lot of strength and we needed to cool it down. The economy is coming into 2023. It came into 2023 with not much strength at all, and we probably need to help it out a little bit. If this banking crisis says anything, we need to help it out a little bit, mm-hmm. right? So a complete opposite shift in terms of economic momentum, economic trend. So all of, and then treasury, and so all these things are are shifting, right? And as a result of that, oh, and also on the commodity prices, right? In 2022, commodity prices had this huge jump because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oil prices jumped, NAC gas prices jumped, wheat prices jumped, metal prices jumped. So we had a big jump in commodity prices in 2022. In 2023, they're crashing. We've talked about the oil crash mm-hmm. before. Natural gas is even worse. Natural gas is at basically all-time low levels right now, which is absolutely crashing. So that's another 180-degree shift in the, in the macroeconomic model. As a result of those shifts, the financial market outputs are shifting 180 degrees too. In 2022, stocks crashed. In 2023, they're up, (laughs) right? We're up 5% on the S&P 500. So we're actually up in 2023. In 2022, energy stocks were the big winner. Mm -hmm. In 2023, energy stocks are crashing. In 2022, tech stocks are the big losers. In 2023, tech stocks are the big winners. NASDAQ's up about 13, 14% year to date. In 2022, Treasury yields were just rising and rising and rising and rising and rising. 2023, Treasury yields are falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. Um, and so you're getting a complete shit. In 2022, cryptos crashed. In mm. 2023, cryptos are soaring. Bitcoin's up 70% year to date. So you're getting this whole shift in, in the market because the whole economy's shifting. And I think what's really happening here is that we are just going back to a low-growth, low-rate, low-inflation environment. The people thought that the 2010s was was abnormal, Mm -hmm. and as a result of that, what 2022 was was an inflection back into a more normal basis where rates would be higher, yields would be higher, inflation would be higher, growth would be higher. I don't think that's the case at all. Mm -hmm. I think that 2022 was the anomaly. We've had a trend for the past 40 years, since 1980, 
And people think the trend was, and the trend has been lower inflation, lower growth, lower rates. People thought that trend was because Volcker brought a hammer to the party and just smashed inflation to death in 1980. <laughs> and as a result, the next 40 years were low growth, low rate, low inflation. No, no, mm -hmm. no not, not, not the reason why the past 40 years have been the way the past 40 years have been. They are that because of two things. One, globalization, and two, technology. We've embraced globalization. We've embraced global cheap labor. And two, we've embraced technology. We've embraced automation. We've embraced the internet, which is very cost-saving. Mm. As a result of those two things, we've had 40 years of low growth, low rates, low inflation. 2022 was an anomaly because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We had this global shock that nobody was prepared for, shut down supply chains. Some places opened up, other places didn't. Unfortunately, where demand was, America opened up. Where supply was, China didn't. Created a huge supply-demand imbalance. And as a result of that, we got inflation. Now that's wiped through the system. That is passed through the system. And we're going back, I believe, into 2023, 2024, 2025, 2026, 2027, 2028, 2030, into a world that we were in in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. We're just going back to that 40-year trend mm. of low growth, low rates, low inflation because we're still embracing technology because we're still embracing globalization. Those forces are much more powerful than people give them credit for right now. And so I think we're just reverting back to an investing environment that is like previous 40 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about embracing technology, and again, the tech sector has been one of the things that's been up, but EV stocks are being kind of left out of this shift, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're kind of tumbling into fresh new lows. Yes, uh, they are. Haven't caught the bid that other tech growth stocks have caught. Right. Care to explain what's going on there? Yeah, electric vehicles are, I mean, there's definitely been some sales uh, momentum lost in the industry. I think there's a couple things going on there. I think one is the consumer is getting weaker as a result of the Fed's rate hikes. Remember, auto purchases are big purchases. EVs are big, big purchases, right? Your average automobiles, twenty, dollars $30,000. $30, Your average EVs, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000, right? So it's a big purchase. It's a big ticket purchase. It's a very interest rate sensitive purchase. A lot of people are financing those purchases. And so if interest rates keep going up and, and people are getting fired and consumers are, are weakening, consumer spending is going down, it makes sense that automobile purchases are going down. So yes, EV sales are losing some momentum in 2023, but so are all automobile sales. It's mm -hmm. not like EV sales are decreasing as a percentage of the pie. It's just all auto sales are going down because consumers are worried right now. And especially now with the banking crisis, people are really worried. And the layoffs are, are getting, getting more widespread too, right? Disney just announced that layoffs are going to start this week. So we're seeing the consumer economy weaken. And that's what's going on with electric vehicle sales. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with people don't want to buy EVs. This mm -hmm. has nothing to do with a lack of government support. This has nothing to do with input costs going up. In fact, input costs on the EV side of things are going down. Metal prices, uh, lithium prices, magnesium prices, cobalt prices, they're crashing, which is really positive for these stocks because China's reopening. China's a hub for all that. So you're seeing very strong long-term fundamentals. You're just seeing weak short-term fundamentals because the consumer economy is weakening. Mm -hmm. So it's a macro thing, really. And so if you're an EV investor, I think you got to, am I a short-term time frame or a long-term time frame? Mm -hmm. A long-term time frame, I know the consumer is going to come back and people are going to buy cars again. So mm -hmm. I'm going to buy the dip in these EV stocks right now. Mm -hmm. And I think another, another part of this is that because the Fed is, is hiking rates and because bank lending is now tightening, a lot of these EV stocks, like Lucid, like Rivian, like Fisker, uh, they require additional capital mm -hmm. because they are not profitable yet. They're spending an arm and a leg to ramp up manufacturing, and they don't have enough cash on the balance sheet to kind of ramp up to the manufacturing levels they want to ramp up to. So they need additional capital. 
additional capital is getting harder to come by and more expensive. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, you're seeing stocks that are reliant on that additional capital get hit. And that that's what a lot of these EV stocks are. Now, with respect to Lucid, they have the Saudi Arabia, basically public investment fund backing them. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not worried about additional capital. With, with respect to Rivian, they have Amazon backing them. So mm-hmm. I'm not worried about capital. And I think Fisker is actually running a real capital-like business model that's going to allow them to man, uh, scale manufacturing pretty quickly. Um, without needing additional capital. So I actually like the the dips in those three stocks right here. I think it is an opportunity, and um, I'm not worried about the EV sales momentum being uh, on the downturn right now. So last week we also talked about the housing market, how that's kind mm-hmm. of bouncing back. How do you separate between what's going on with the automobile industry yeah. and what's going on with the housing market? Well, demand for uh, homes is... is this, the difference is there's a lot of sideline demand for homes, and there's mm-hmm. not a lot of sideline demand for cars. Mm-hmm. Everyone who wants a car bought a car, has a car. Um, people, the market is is a bunch of people that want to buy a new car. I don't, you know, you, you can put off that purchase. Mm-hmm. You, you can wait a little bit. You know, you don't need a new car. The home one is you have a whole generation of people that are, are not homeowners, mm-hmm. that are renters, that are paying out thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars every single month just to live, and they're like, I need to get into a home. I need to start building some equity. So there's a whole bunch of sideline demand and a sense of urgency in the housing market that is not there in the automobile market. So I expect the housing market to bounce back much sooner, more quickly, and more significantly than the automobile market, despite both being interest rate sensitive. And we're seeing that. The housing market is bouncing back already. The automobile market is not. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm really, really bullish on housing stocks here and somewhat less bullish on, on auto stocks at the current moment. But I really like, I mean, Zillow, Redfin, uh, Rocket Mortgage, Open Door. Like, I think those stocks, all the home builders, KB Home, I think those stocks are really primed for a really strong 2023 because I really do believe this housing market is it's ready to go. Mm-hmm. It's really ready to go. When I talk to realtors in San Diego, talk to realtors in LA, talk to friends at some of these companies, I mean, there's momentum building. When mm-hmm. I talk to prospective home buyers, they're ready to they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And at any sign of mortgage rate weakness, they're, I mean, boom. <laughs> so I really like the setup in that market. I really like the setup in some of those stocks. I think those stocks are really ready to rip higher. The auto stocks are going to take longer to recover. Mm-hmm. All right, Luke. Well, I know you have a full day planned, so we're going to keep this episode a little short. But we do have a few fan questions, starting with Ian S. Hi, Luke. Serious congratulations on calling the Fed interest rate path right so far. There are some real bargains in the tech world right now. You mentioned you'd be a buyer of Luminar at these levels, but mm-hmm. looking at the balance sheet, doesn't the negative shareholder equity give you cause for concern? Listen, if, if, I, if I could just jump through this screen right now and just grab people and tell them to buy something, it would be Luminar. Mm-hmm. Luminar is a fabulously run company with fabulous engineers. They have a cost and performance leadership in LiDAR, which I expect to be standardized in all automobiles in the second half of the 2020s. They just won a massive partnership with Mercedes-Benz. Massive, multi-billion dollar. Probably, they haven't disclosed the exact numbers, but I'm going to guess based on Innovis' deal with um, Volkswagen, it's probably a four to $5 billion partnership. Mm-hmm. They're going to become standard in all Mercedes-Benz models. That's my guess. They also have the Volvo coming out, the Volvo ECEX90. It's a seven-seater electric Volvo. It's coming out next year, 2024. It's a really sexy car. <laughs> that has Luminar LiDAR in it. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to become standardized in all Volvo cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the big partnership with SAIC in China. So, I mean, these guys are just knocking partnership after partnership after partnership after partnership. They're going to become a mission-critical component supplier for automakers in the back half of the 2020s. I think by 2030, you'll have Luminar LiDAR in one out of every three or four cars. 
Uh, you got to buy the stock here. I mean, th this is a fabulous stock. It's got a lot of cash. They have mm -hmm. more than enough cash runway to support their cash burn over the next few years. They're not relying on additional capital, so don't worry about the cost of capital right now. Um, Austin Russell is an absolute genius. I've met him. He's a really, really smart guy. He is really inspirational. A lot of the people that work for him love working for him. Um, the engineers of the company are fabulously talented. Insiders are buying up like crazy. They're winning huge partnerships. The valuation's super cheap. They're about to have massive revenue growth ramp in 2023, 2024, 2025. It's a stock that you have to buy on this silly dip. I mean, this dip happened because I forget what firm came in and downgraded it because Luminar's LiDAR is more expensive than Innoviz and other LiDAR. Yes, of course it is. Mm. Of course it is because it's better. <laughs> if something's better, it's going to cost more. Mm -hmm. Innoviz is doing MEMS and... Luminar is doing mechanical, and the mechanical is, is much superior. It, mm -hmm. It's stronger. Luminar's performance, their, their time-of-flight LiDAR, is stronger than Innoviz's LiDAR. So it's going to cost more. And that's why Innoviz got to deal with Volkswagen, and Luminar <laughs> got to deal with Mercedes. Right? I yeah, mean, that's, that, no. that, that's a deal. So, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not, not all brands are going to be mm -hmm. Luminar brands. Sure. But the good ones are going to be. Mm -hmm. I bet Mercedes goes over there. I bet BMW goes over there. Uh, I bet Volvo goes over there. I think the the, the higher end auto brands are going to go with Luminar, and they already are. And so I think you, 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 this downgrade is absolutely silly. Ignore that. Buy the dip. It's at a really strong technical support level. I think it rips higher from here. Really bullish on Luminar. Really bullish. All right. Uh, next question from Lynn Nick. How about STEM as a buy for the recent dip? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Energy storage stocks, and actually clean energy stocks have been pretty weak recently. And I think it's because of their need for additional financing. So again, a lot of companies that are reliant on additional financing have been whacked in the banking crisis because the cost of capital is going to go up, because bank land standards are going to go up. And so you're going to see these companies struggle harder to get more capital. Mm -hmm. STEM finds itself in that boat. And I think that it's going to be okay long term, but I think definitely in the short term, I'm much more constructive on Fluence. We've talked about mm -hmm. this before. I like STEM. I like Fluence. They're both going to be energy storage leaders. Long term, they're both great investments. But in the short term, I like Fluence more. Fluence has been hit as well. Mm -hmm. STEM has been hit. So is Fluence. Fluence is coming into really strong technical support levels. It's bouncing off that. It's technically oversold. They have a much stronger balance sheet, in my opinion. They have a much stronger short-term growth profile pipeline. And so I like Fluence more than STEM at the current levels mm -hmm. long term i like them both so for the person asking the question it's going to depend on their, their time horizon but you know if you're looking out six to 12 months i would say fluence mm -hmm. if you're looking out four or five years stem probably has more upside all right well great insights as always for hci investors luke do you have any last words before we wrap um no but i got a question for the audience guys <laughs> fill in the uh you show us in the comments <laughs> Chick-fil-A breakfast or McDonald's breakfast? I'm a McDonald's guy, sausage, egg, and cheese, McGriddle all the way. A lot of the guys in the office here like Chick-fil-A breakfast. I don't get what they like about it. But please let me know in the comments, McDonald's or Chick-fil-A. There is a right answer. All right. <laughs> That's what I got. Well, leave your answer in the comments. And that wraps this episode of HCI. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover or to see if we can answer any of your burning questions, please leave them in the comments section. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And we will see you all next week. Bye all.